Good morning, everybody. Uh, and well, Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator this morning. Today is Sunday, January 5th. 2014. The share ID number for Friday, January 3rd, is 5689. 5689. Today, A Vision for You presents the double whammy. The big book's approach to step one is what Dr. William Silkworth, early champion of AA and the doctor who wrote two letters found in the doctor's opinion, called the double whammy. Our twofold illness consists of an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. We can't stop once we've started, and we can't stop from starting again. Joining us this morning to speak on this double whammy is Lori. Lori is a recovered compulsive overeater from Winnipeg, Canada, and he spends much time intensively working with other compulsive overeaters and carrying the message of recovery. And it is my great pleasure to turn the meeting over to Lori. Welcome, Lori. Thanks, Leah. I, I hope I can be heard. If I can't, please, please let me know. I hear you I'm perfectly Laurie, I'm well. Compul- thank you. I'm Lori. I'm a compulsive eater. Uh, and I want to thank you for the opportunity of being able to speak with you. Uh, Leah said everything I have to say, so I, I'm not sure I have to say anything more uh, because it is really simple. The big book's approach to our problem is simple. Um, when I joined uh, our program back in uh, uh, February the 11th, 1986, I didn't hear this message. Um, and I still, in the rooms, don't always hear it uh, uh, as well. Um, I was desperate, but not because I really understood what my problem was. I was desperate because in some vague way, I knew that I had a problem with food. And I had been told by a member of of Alcoholics Anonymous, a friend of mine who had been in AA at that time for about 40 years and had been a, a real gutter drunk, that I should start taking my food as seriously as he took his alcohol. That's the only reason I was desperate enough to join. It was not because I heard in the meetings the messages that I now believe are significant uh, enough to bring me to my knees. And as a matter of fact, it was not until about six years after I joined, between six and seven years after I joined, that I began to hear the simple message of the double whammy that gave me the real impetus to uh, begin uh, a recovery. I, for six or seven years in this program, I, I relapsed. I would recover and relapse and recover and relapse, recover and relapse over and over again. It, it, I don't know how many times this happened, um, and I'll explain why this happened, because I didn't appreciate the double whammy, uh, but I finally began to appreciate it. I finally began to read the big book in a way that I had never read it before. I read it as a set of directions instead of as an inspiring book that occasionally, uh, an archaic, an old-style book that occasionally had some inspiring things in it. Um, So Leah properly explained in in a few words the simple sense of this double whammy. Once I start, I can't stop. 
And even if I may have stopped for a while, I can't stop from starting. This is the experience of anyone who has ever been a yo-yo dieter. It is not that we can't diet. We, we have many of us over and over and over again using any number of diets um, uh, that are available. It's that we keep going back and keep finding ourselves in the same situation that we found ourselves before we began the diet. This is not true for everyone, and, and uh, one other reason why whammy is important um, is to help define what it means, at least from the perspective of the big book, what it means to have a desire to stop eating compulsively. There are many programs available to people who are overweight or underweight that provide them either or both with a pretty good diet, a pretty good um, suggestion for uh, how to eat well, nutritiously, and in a way that, uh, that uh, allows you to lose weight or to gain weight, and that provides support, that provides people around you who giving you encouragement and telling you that you're doing well and you can give encouragement to them. Uh, what the 12 steps provide, what a 12-step program provide, uh, provides that is different um, from either a support program or a diet program or a combination of an end diet program is a freedom from the bondage of food. And the bondage of food is really the essence of the problem that we have and that not everyone has. A bunch of people simply need a sense of what it is to eat reasonably. A bunch of people simply need a sense of saying, oh, four ounces of meat is all I need. I don't need to order a 16-ounce steak. Or, gee, it's not good to eat um, shortbread or something like that. I mean, that's all they need. Um, uh, a bunch of people simply need hugs and encouragement and a sense of uh, dealing with their problems, uh, a sense of uh, you know, feeling as if they're not alone uh, or as if they can be useful. But what the 12 steps provide is something really quite different, a transformation itself, which solves a problem that not everyone has. So I want to talk about the double whammy, and I, I, uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't use the discussion of the double whammy to talk about the difference between OA and many other 12-step programs, which is that we do not have a single substance or a single behavior that we all agree on is the thing that we can't stop. Uh, and I'll, I'll discuss that later. And as well, without giving a sense of hope. Uh, this is the beginning of a new year for many, many people around the world. And the beginning of the new year is often a time when people come back to OA or join OA or um, try to rededicate themselves um, uh, to the program. So I, I not only want to give a sense of the double whammy, which is what step one is all about, the despair, the reason why we're hopeless, the reason why we are unmanageable uh, and, and our power, uh, our killer foods. But I also want to uh, emphasize that the 12-step program of Overeaters Anonymous provides a solution to that problem. And I want to explain how the big book uh, describes that solution. 
Um, so let me let me uh, tell my story a bit. Um, and and I, those of you who have heard me before, I apologize for repeating my story, but it, it is my story. Um, my, I have two problems, as I said. One of them is that I, I can't stop once I've started. And I have uh, my generic description of that problem is one that describes what I used to be like for, for over 40 years. And, and that is a person who takes the hand or the fork or the spoon and puts up food in it to the mouth. And the mouth accepts it and chews it or sucks it or does something with it. And the hand and the spoon and the fork keep coming back with that food. And the mouth accepts it and the mouth swallows it and it goes down in the belly. And somehow it feels good in some weird, strange way. Uh, I feel a sense of ease and comfort when I do this. And yet my mind is saying, I must stop. This is bad for me. This is causing me problems. I've had enough. If only if someone ever saw me, they would be disgusted by how much I am eating. Uh, I have, um, and, and this is true for me, uh, in, my, in my family, I have uh, diabetes, I have heart disease, I have high blood pressure. Uh, these are dangers, and the food I'm eating is causing me uh, tremendous risk that I will suffer diabetes. I will suffer heart disease. I will suffer uh, high blood pressure. And not only that... Uh, diabetes is a hidden killer, and from diabetes will stem strokes and gangrene and uh, uh, blindness uh, and the gradual deterioration of my body uh, in a way that uh, is not very dramatic. It's not like uh, many uh, uh, many addicts of other from other programs. I, I will not die a spectacular death. Um, I will not have dramatic. Um, uh, reverberations or dramatic episodes where where, where I uh, uh, really amaze people, I will simply get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more uh, immobile and more and more dependent upon other people to assist me. My body will deteriorate. Uh, I will become less what I am and less able to to enjoy what life is. And it will be slow. It will be like that proverbial frog in the cold water that is slowly brought to boiling. I won't even notice it. I'll be oblivious to it. And one day I'll wake up and I'll be in a hospital bed, a special hospital bed, large enough to contain me. Uh, and I will be hoisted onto a special lounging chair, large enough to contain me. And I will watch TV and I will eat and I will watch TV, and I will read, and I will listen to uh, music, and I will read, and I will eat, and I will eat. And people will despair about me. That, by the way, is the fate of people I've known, um, people I've known who have not been rigorously honest and have uh, died um, resisting uh, the 12 steps. And that is what would have happened to me if I hadn't been told by my friend to take my food as seriously as he took his alcohol. And if I hadn't, six or seven years later, after joining OA, embraced the big book's discussion of the problem. So that's my generic story. I just, the hand, the food keeps coming, and my mind is saying I've got to stop, 
and it doesn't stop. Uh, there are two stories I tell that are pretty graphic, um, and and uh, I I will tell them because they seem to have some people identify with them. So I'll tell them. Uh, one is uh, is uh, the uh, the day my mother cooked a, a roast goose. I was in my twenties. It was uh, Hanukkah, the uh, the uh, Jewish festival of uh, light and of Greece. Uh, that means something to to Jews. It, it's just just most all the food that's served on Hanukkah is very greasy. Uh, and my mother cooked a roast goose. I had eaten extremely well. I was stuffed to the gills. I I couldn't imagine eating any more. Um, the meal was over. The guests were all about. 10 feet away, 15 feet away in a, another part of the house. Um, just around the corner, I went into the kitchen to get a diet drink. I saw the goose carcass uh, on the cutting board with the goose skin hanging there. And I said to myself, I remember this so well. I said, uh, I, I, I'm too full to eat anything, but I really do like the taste of a goose skin. So I'm going to I'm going to have a little bit. I'm just going to just have a taste because I really like the taste. I can't eat anymore. I picked up this goose skin. It had fallen off the uh, the carcass because goose skin is so fat it doesn't even stick to the meat. And I tried to bite a bit of a just bite a bit of the goose skin off. I couldn't. It was it was it's very tough skin. So I put a bit more in my mouth trying to find a weak spot, trying to tear it away. And I couldn't find a weak spot. I kept putting a little bit more in to find a weak spot. It was very slippery, but I, I kept putting it in. And I found myself with the entire goose skin in my mouth. Uh, I was chewing frantically because it was still so hot from the oven. Two hours later, it was that fat, uh, that it was burning the inside of my mouth. I was chewing frantically trying to get that fat out so it would, it would stop burning me. Uh, fat was spurting out of my mouth, uh, dribbling down me. Um, if anyone had come from the, from, you know, just around the corner, it would have been humiliating, but I didn't stop. I didn't stop until I had eaten that entire goose skin. And, and, and that for me is a, is a, is a humiliating story of the, of something that was beyond my control. I could not stop doing what I was doing as humiliating and awful as it was as full as I was. And at another uh, time, and, and this is truly a disgusting story, it's a story that I don't tell my wife because she's not like me. And I can tell you that if I told her this story, she wouldn't be able to eat for, for hours because it is so disgusting. But it happened in Minneapolis. Before we began this, uh, this meeting, Leigh and I were talking about Minneapolis. Uh, she used to live in Minneapolis, and, and I used to live 40 miles south of Minneapolis when I went to a small college uh, back in the 60s. Um, and uh, Winnipeg is north of, of there. I had taken a train. Uh, that's where I live. I had taken a train overnight. It would have been a spring break. It was, uh, it was sometime in March. It was a dreary, dismal um, uh, day. It, it, was very, it was slushy. There was still ice and snow on the ground, but it was beginning to melt. It was kind of dull. I got there at 6 in the morning, and the bus to where I was supposed to go um, was, uh, was leaving at 8. So I heard about downtown Minneapolis, which at that time was not the kind of vibrant city it is now. Um, and especially on a Sunday morning at six o'clock, it, it wasn't very vibrant anyway. I wandered about and there was a diner there that was advertising, you know, one of those special big breakfasts, two, uh, two eggs and 
two hash browns and two sausages, I don't know what, uh, um, for 39 cents, which was a good price back in 1963 or four. And I, I wandered in there and it was an awful place. People were smoking, people were hacking and coughing. It was a 24 hour diner. Uh, clearly everyone there had been up all night and it was just, it was packed with people, awful, dingy, horrible place. Um, and I, I found one stool at, at the counter and I sort of elbowed my way in there. I ordered what I did. It was horrible. It was greasy. It was terrible, but I, I ate it. I was eating it. And suddenly the man right next to me puts in this place, just vomits into his plate. And then he faints and his head goes right onto the plate, into the vomit. And my reaction, I continued to eat. I turned my back to him and continued to eat. And for me, that's another story of humiliation. Uh, not that anyone saw me or cared about me, but I'm humiliated even by thinking that I could continue to eat while next to me someone was, well, such horrible things were going on. But this is what I was before I joined this program, and this is what I would be if I went back to eating foods, food ingredients, or indulging in eating behaviors that I know cause this same problem. And that is that I could not stop once I started. Not true for all True for radishes, not true for radishes, for instance, but certainly true for the goose skin and certainly true for, for the greasy meal that I was eating at this diner. Certainly true for ice cream. I have eaten tubs of ice cream. I've taken cartons of ice cream and eaten from the other end so no one would know that I was eating it. I have not been able to stop once I've started despite what I've had in my body already, despite how much I've already eaten. This whole sense of not being able to stop is a key part of understanding our problem and understanding our solution. Well, that's one side of me. And I'll, I'll get to sort of why that is in a moment, but I'll tell the other side of my story. And that side of my story is that there have been many times when I have dieted. There have been many times when I lost weight. There have been many times when I've tried to diet or I've been in a diet for a certain length of time. And I have, well, I remember one time I, I lived in Chicago in very um, oh, uh, low-income circumstances, and I was eating very, uh, very selectively and, and not very much. I was walking everywhere because I didn't have a lot of money. And um, after about a year, I had, I had lost a great deal of weight. I was in better shape than I had ever been. I was uh, 22. I uh, came home to the loving and ample uh, and uh, food uh, dispensing bosom of my family. Um, and I finally, for the first time that I could remember, I, I've been fat my entire life, my entire, my entire memory of my life. I, there are pictures of me when I was thin, when I was five or six, but I remember being, I remember the butt of all the jokes and the, you know, all the things that happened to you in gym classes and, uh, you know, people being rejected as you're, uh, you know, you want to ask girls out or something like that. Um, 
I, I remember all that, being called fatty, calling myself tubby before other people would call me fatty. Uh, so that I would, uh, I would not. It would not be quite as bad. Making jokes about myself, becoming the class joker. Um, and anyway, I was finally, I was finally thin. It was uh, really a, a remarkable thing. Uh, and I, I decided I wanted to uh, eat my favorite uh, dessert, which was uh, bananas and cream, uh, which consists of uh, a bowl of banana, of cut up bananas, and you pour cream to the top of the bowl, and then you put sugar on until it completely saturates the cream you quickly eat the bananas then you eat the sugar the cream and i i used to love that but i thought i'm so thin i'm hurting myself uh i'm not just going to have ordinary cream the kind of cream that we use we used to use in coffee and stuff i'm going to have uh oh just like the name of it uh the the famous uh, english uh, cream amazing i can't remember the name of it right now um but um i might be able to remember what it was i Oh, Devonshire cream, Devonshire cream. Um, and I bought it, you buy it in a can, and it's, it's so thick, uh, it's, it's 90% fat. I put it in the fridge, I um, got it all ready, I started to eat this banana and cream, Devonshire cream, and I couldn't eat it. My body was so unused to fat that it was rejecting the Devonshire cream. It, 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 for the first time in my life, something was too rich for me. I'd, I'd never experienced that feeling, but for a year I hadn't eaten rich things. And my reaction, and this is truly the problem with mind, my reaction was not, oh great, I've been fat for so many years and now I'm thin and now fat foods don't appeal to me, my body rejects them. My reaction was, I'd better get into training. Uh, I'll start with 2%, I'll go on to whole milk, I'll then go to 10% cream. I'll go to half and half until I can eat that Devonshire cream with my uh, bananas. And uh, I did that. I got into training. I gradually got used to fat foods. And within a year, I was fatter than I had ever been. Um, but that's not, I mean, there are many reasons why I've gone back to food. I've been on many, many diets, and there have been many, many reasons. I've been one of the, one of the uh, simple uh, reasons I've given to going back to the food is, well, uh, I won't be able to get this food again. I'm traveling. I'm in a particular part of the world where they serve this food, this particular food. Yeah, it's not on my diet, but I mean, I, you know, I'm not coming back here, so I might as well have some. Um, I've been, I've said... I'm really depressed. I, I just can't take it anymore. Life is really hard for me. This bad thing or that bad thing is happening. Uh, what should I do? Well, the immediate answer that came to me was, I better eat. It'll, it'll make me feel better. Um, I've had occasions, and I'll never forget it. I, I, I remember I was about 25, 26. I'd had a particularly incredibly good day. It was some wonderful things that happened. I had accomplished certain things. I must have, I probably received some praise from someone for what I had done. I remember I was driving home and I said to myself, I've got to celebrate. I've got what, you know, I'm going to eat anything I want. I've got some money now. I'm going to, I'll go anywhere. I'll eat whatever I wanted. And I remember what I really, and, and I remember feeling so ashamed that that was what I really wanted. I could have had anything. I could have had any kind of great food, but what I really, really, really wanted was a triple cheeseburger with a 
I mean, I really, it's a particular kind of cheeseburger in, in my hometown. And that's what I really wanted. And I, I was embarrassed, uh, even thinking to myself that that's what will make me feel better or make me help me celebrate when, in fact, I could have had great food, you know, really high quality gourmet food. And that's what I, re- what I really wanted was that, that uh, crap, if you'll excuse the expression. Um, so I've said I want to celebrate. I'll eat. I've said I want, I'm so depressed. I'm so lonely. I'll eat. I mean, I've come up with all these uh, different reasons that are deeply ingrained in my emotions. But I've also come up uh, I'll never be able to have this food again. It will go to waste. Everyone's looking at me. How can I refuse? Uh, they made it especially for me. How can I refuse? Um, I had the deep emotional thing. I want to die and overeating will kill me. But it's a nice way to commit suicide. And uh, my wife won't feel guilty when I die. Um, something has to remove the hurt. Um, I'm standing up. It doesn't count. Uh, it, it's a stone ground, whole grain uh, cinnamon bun made with organic molasses and cold pressed organic oil. It's got to be good for me. It's natural. Uh, she's not looking, so it doesn't count. I have to taste it in order to see whether it's okay. At least people can see what my weakness is. This was important to me. Uh, you know, you, you know that joke. I used to be conceited, but I got over that. Now I'm perfect. Well, well, I used to say I have a fault. I'm an overeater. I, I am fat, uh, and I, I I compulsively eat. I used to sort of know in my mind that this was true for me. Um, but at least people can see what my weakness is. I'm not hiding it like some alcoholics. I'm not hiding it like, uh, like addicts. I, I, I'm, it's obvious what my problem is. Um, and then came reasons like, <laughs> I've been very good for a year. I've been very good for a month. I've been very good for a week. I've been very good for an hour. I didn't eat the bun. I didn't eat the last French fry. I didn't eat the last helping or the second helping. I've been good, so I deserve it. And and this is these are this is one. I mean, how many examples did I give? Maybe twenty examples, twenty five examples. These are examples that uh, I don't even remember how many examples or how many instances of this have happened to my life. But they happen continually. What the big emphasizes is that they will always occur because my real problem is that I can't stop from starting again. Somehow my mind will come up with an excuse to start again. So those are the two halves of my problem. On the one hand are the examples and the numerous examples of my eating despite the fact that I wanted to stop eating. I couldn't stop. The hand kept bringing the food to my mouth and my mouth kept accepting it and chewing it and putting it down. And that is an example of my body taking over. And on the other hand, there were times when I had stopped. There were times when I was on a diet and my mind kept saying, this time you can have some. This time it will be okay. Now, the big book spends a great deal of time discussing these two aspects of our existence, of the existence of the addict. 
And it seems somehow easier to describe that for the alcoholic. Um, we read the big book, if we do read the big book, and we know the examples that the big book gives. Uh, it's interesting to know, though, that until about 1933, no one had ever published any documentation, any suggestions that there was a simple reason why alcoholics couldn't stop drinking. And it wasn't psychological in and of itself. It wasn't a sign of moral weakness. It wasn't anything that you could uh, cure by sort of saying to a person, just man up, man, just smarten up, just, just stop it. Push yourself away from the uh, bar. Just don't go into bars. Uh, just keep it out of your house. Uh, it's not a question of willpower. It's a question of won't power. You know, all these, these things uh, that I, I, I have heard uh, the equivalent of uh, for my uh, overeating. But in 1930, uh, oh, maybe 32, but 33, um, a doctor named William Silkworth, and he was a man, his expertise was the mind. He was a neurologist, a uh, uh, psychologist, a uh, psychiatrist. Uh, in those days, I guess you could be all kinds of things, um, who had fallen onto difficult times, uh, depression, and uh, ended up working at a, uh, a rehabilitation place and a dry-out uh, place for rich people uh, called the Towns Hospital, the Charles B. Towns Hospital. And this was a place he used to drugs, but mostly to drunks. And he, he ministered to them. He was a, a wonderful man, and people called him a saintly doctor, the kind little doctor. He loved these drunks he dealt with. They'd come into his, uh, his hospital. He would dry them out. He would lecture them on the perils of drinking, and they'd go out vowing never to be back, and he'd see them year after year after year. He began to develop a theory, which he published in 1932 or 33, and this was that the problem of the alcoholic was a twofold one, not a single problem, not a problem that could be dealt with by counseling or psychology, but a twofold problem, one that involved the body and one that involved the mind. This was a revolutionary idea. It was so revolutionary that when he put it down in the doctor's opinion, when the big book was first published in 1939, that he didn't even uh, have his name put in. It was just, uh, the name was just blank, Dr. Dr. W. Blank, S. Blank. Um, it was finally put in in the, in the uh, second edition, or maybe in subsequent printings of the big book. But at any rate, it was a revolutionary idea. It did not catch on. Um, he published it uh, first in 32, 33 in a medical journal, but no one really gave it much heed. Um, and his theory was that there's something wrong with the body and something wrong with the mind. Um, in the doctor's opinion, which is found in the big book uh, on, in the fourth edition on page XXV25 and in the third edition XXIII23, um, he, he provided an explanation of his problem in a way that um, uh, makes some sense and has some words that are, are, are very valuable. Uh, the first part of the doctor's opinion, the first page and a half, uh, is, is, uh, is a letter of reference, basically saying these people can be trusted, the people who wrote this book can be trusted, they're absolutely honest. Um, 
And then on page uh, XXVI, uh, 26 in Roman numerals of the fourth edition, and XXIV, uh, 24 of the third edition, and the second edition, um, after his uh, signature, uh, the big book uh, writers say this, the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms that we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, must believe. They, they say that the, our program has no must, that it's all suggestion. Well, that's not true for the big book. There are a lot of musts in the big book, over 50, similar to this kind. That we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. What must be believed? must we believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. I read that for years in the program. Uh, I started with the big book. Uh, I read it many times uh, in my first six or seven years in the program. And I loved the big book and I underlined it and I studied it. But I rejected this because this was contrary to every single theory about compulsive eating that I had read. Uh, Every uh, diet, every nutritionist, every uh, magazine that talked about um, losing weight did not say that my body was different, that my body was sickened. It said my body would be sick if I continued to eat. But, it, but all these uh, people, all these experts, supposed experts said that once I lost my weight, I could eat anything I wanted in moderation. But they go on. Uh, they say the doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. Now, allergy, I used to read that and say, I don't have an allergy to food. I love food. I, I, I'm a gourmet cook, or I'm not a gourmet cook, but I'm a very good cook, and I, I, can, I, don't, I don't even use cookbooks to cook with. I understand food, and I love it. I, I don't get rashes. I don't get diarrhea. I don't get hives. I don't get um, anaphylactic shock from any foods. I can eat anything. As a matter of fact, I did, I did eat anything. I, my, my boss, the only two things I wouldn't eat were instant coffee and brains, cow brains. But I, from that, I ate anything. Um, and uh, so I did have limits, I guess. Uh, and I said, I didn't have, I don't have an allergy. Uh, when I really began, to study the big book as a, um, as a set of directions. And this was about six and a half years uh, after I joined the program. Uh, I began to think about this. And I was studying it with someone who said to me, when I said, I don't have an allergy, the person said, well, look it up in the dictionary. And I did. Uh, it was interesting enough to know that, uh, interesting to know that allergy is a very young word, has hardly been in the language for, it's been in language for approximately a century. Uh, in English. And when it was first used, and when it was certainly used in night by 1939, it did not have the very specific meaning that we've given it today. The analogy is today is a particular kind of reaction, a, a reaction that's, that's um, 
visible in some way, or, or you know, it, it's the kind of, we think of rashes or diarrhea or anaphylactic shock, something physical happening to us that that is not enjoyable, that is not a good thing, um, and that we know is not enjoyable. But what the word allergy means in its in its real and original meaning is any abnormal physical reaction to a substance, any abnormal physical reaction. And what the doctor is going to do in the next letter uh, that, that he writes uh, in, in the big book is describe the nature of that allergic reaction, the nature of that abnormality. It is not rashes, diarrhea, hives, anaphylactic shock. It is something completely different. And once we accept that's an allergy, then the word allergy makes sense. I usually don't use the word allergy when I describe this uh, to people who are prospective members of OA because the word allergy has lost the meaning that it used to have. But once we understand the meaning, we can read the big book with a great deal of help. At any rate, the, the big book people go on, they say, as laymen, our opinion as to his ex-soundness may of course mean little, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. It's important for us to believe that we have an allergy or that we have an abnormal body reaction. And I think there are four good reasons for that. Uh, the first is that it should remove guilt. Uh, if, if my body is, has an abnormal reaction, it's not my fault or it's not a moral defect in me. Uh, it's a physical fact. Uh, I need glasses to see. I'm not sure that I need glasses to see. I accept that my body has limitations. Um, I, I, there are all kinds of limitations that I accept. I, I'll never run a four-minute mile. Uh, I'll never, um, you know, I, I, I'm not an athlete. I'll never be able to do things that athletes do. I'm uh, 68 years old. Uh, I'm never going to do the things I could even do at 40. I accept these things. I don't feel that somehow I'm guilty because I can't do what I used to be able to do or I can't do what other people uh, do. Uh, so the concept that there's something physically abnormal about my body uh, should come as a relief because it now takes away the guilt and explains the problem I have. The second is that it, the solution is immediate. If there's something, if I get an abnormal reaction to a substance, then to avoid the abnormal reaction, clearly, I avoid the substance. That was allergic to shrimp or peanuts who gets an anaphylactic shock that could kill them does. They stay away from peanuts and they stay away from, or they stay away from shrimp or they stay away from anything that can cause them either discomfort or death, uh, depending on the, the nature of the allergy. People who are gluten uh, sensitive, people who are celiac, they avoid gluten. People who are diabetic avoid uh, certain kinds of foods because their body cannot take those foods without having adverse reactions. Why shouldn't I now look at the issue relating to food in the same way? The third reason, and this is what is so important for OAers, is that understanding that we have an abnormal reaction to food means that we, unlike the alcoholic, unlike the gambler, unlike the drug addict, have an individual obligation to figure out what it is that we are allergic to. The group conscience of OA to 
of the past, the dignity of choice or a dignity of choice, has accepted the notion, and I, I know this is true, uh, that each one of us has individual abnormal reactions and that we have to figure out for ourselves what it is that we are allergic to. And I'll talk about this later. I'm, I'm building up to this, but I'm talking, I'll talk about this later. The fourth reason why it's important to... Uh, or why it's very helpful to have this concept of an allergy, uh, is that many of us, I am, I am certainly one, are people pleasers. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to say to someone who offers us something we can't eat, oh, I just found out I'm allergic to it. I can't eat this. I'm sorry. Thank you for making it. Thank you for offering it to me. But I can't eat it because I'm allergic to it. And that gets rid of a whole bunch of social pressures that um, they're, they say, well, what happens if they ask me, well, what happens when you eat it? And I'll give you three answers. My favorite answer, and it's one that I use as a recovered uh, compulsive eater, is, oh, well, I, I have this allergy to food, uh, certain kinds of food that when I, when I get it, I develop uh, certain cravings and I can't stop. And I used to weigh a, a many, many uh, dozens of pounds more than I weigh now. Uh, but I've kept it off for over 20 years now, and I haven't even wanted to eat those things. I'm a member of Overeaters Anonymous. If you know anyone who's interested, let me tell you. Uh, let me tell you all about it, and let me tell you that I can tell. Tell you know, I'd be happy to talk to them, because for me, it's important to carry the message. But many people aren't ready for that. So uh, I'll give you two other answers that you can give if you ever want to. If someone ever asks you what happens when you eat this stuff, one is I break out in fat, and the other is my bum begins to swell. At any rate, the big book says we must accept this abnormality of our heart. The doctor on the next pages, uh, page, beginning with page XXVII in the fourth edition, 27, and XXV at 25 in the, fifth, uh, in the third and second edition, the doctor begins to describe exactly what this problem is. And he does it on... Um, begins to do it on page 28 XXVIII of the fourth edition and 26 XXVI of the second or third edition. In the first full paragraph there, he says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation, a symptom of an allergy. And then he describes what that manifestation, what that symptom is that the phenomenon of craving, a phenomenon is, a, is an occurrence for which there is no explanation. It's just something that happens. The plural of, plural of it's a Greek word, the plural of phenomenon is phenomena. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the phenomenon, the occurrence for which there is no explanation of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed a habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. And he goes on, and right at the bottom of that same page, he says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The, sensa this is, the sensation is so elusive that it runs away from them. That while they admit it is injurious, while they admit it causes them harm, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are, are restless, discontented, 
unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity, without a problem. After they've succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving, this unexplained craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of the spring. That concept of the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, is really fascinating to me. Um, my, my wife is not a compulsive eater. Never has been. As a matter of fact, they, you know, we, we just read that to them, their alcoholic life, uh, life seems, the, uh, seems the normal one. Uh, my wife uh, likes food, often enjoys it, but uh, really doesn't consider it to be the most important thing in her life. And I remember when I was going out with her and beginning to fall in love with her uh, many, many years ago, um, uh, there must be something wrong with her. Uh, I I, I could run away from her. She must be very sick. When in fact, (laughs) I I was the sick person. Um, But I remember shortly after we got married, my mother, my, uh, my wife and I went to her mother's place or my mother-in-law's father-in-law's house for supper and my wife who hated the food I cooked it was too spicy it was too uh, too innovative I guess too fat probably squealed with delight when she saw that her mother had made uh, spring potatoes which which were little the little potatoes that were roasted uh, at the bottom of the roasting pan along with the roast very crispy on the outside very soft on the inside and for the first time in our relationship, uh, we've been going out for a long time. We've been friends before that. I saw her gobbling up her food. I'd never seen her eat so quickly and, and, and eat such pieces. She was taking these uh, small round potatoes, cutting them in half and eating a half at a time. And she was really eating quickly. And I remember kind of marveling at that because I had never seen her do that. And finally, her plate was empty except for one half of a potato. Uh, and she cut that half in half ate the quarter of a potato, and put her fork down. I remember still to this day looking at that little quarter of a potato just sitting forlornly on the plate. And I said to her, aren't you going to eat that? She said, no, I'm full. I said, but, but you love it. She said, oh, I love it. I haven't had it for so long. My mother's cooking. I've missed my mother's cooking. I love those spring potatoes. Oh, I loved it. And then I yelled at her, why aren't you eating it? And she looked at me. She said, because I'm full. And I, I remember being so exasperated by that, by that concept. Um. To this day, uh, my wife and I can go to a fancy restaurant, and, and she loves chocolate. Uh, um, I, I, and, and, and she'll often go, we'll go to this fancy restaurant, and sometimes, it doesn't happen a lot, but we'll, they'll, they'll bring the pastry tray, uh, the pastry cart down, and ask her if she wants dessert, and she says, oh, I'll have this. And she orders, you know, some rich dessert, uh, chocolate dessert. And I see her have her first taste of it, and she melts. It's just, oh, God, is this good. And then she eats half of it, always talking about how wonderful it is. And then she puts her fork down. She says, oh, this is too much. I'll take the rest home with me. And I have, I experience these days three miracles. One is, I don't even want to try it. I don't want to see why it's so good. 
Secondly, I'm happy for her that she's enjoying the food. And I'm not jealous of her. And third, I'm not angry at her for not finishing it. I consider each one of those to be a separate and wonderful miracle. And that's what this program has provided uh, for me. Anyway, that's a digression. Um, I experienced the same problem with alcohol. I've had the occasion to drink some of the best beer or wine. I don't like hard liquor, but some really fine beer or some really fine wine. But I cannot drink more than a glass, a glass and a half of either beer or wine, a wine glass for the wine and a beer glass for the beer, um, before my body says, you've had enough. As good as this taste is, you've had enough. And I, my body, don't want any more. Doesn't want any more. Um, imagine that's what it's like with food for my wife. That as good as the taste is, there's a point at which her body experiences what the doctor would call a sense of unease and discomfort. Just as I have the same with this great taste of, of wine or beer that I have, at a certain point, I have a sense of unease and discomfort. And as good as the taste was, I can't take anymore. I have never had that with food. Never in my life have I had the feeling that I couldn't eat anything more of something that my body wanted or something that I liked the taste of. I've, I've been stuffed to the point that I feel as if the food is up to the top of my neck and I could still eat more. Uh, and I've never experienced that with alcohol. My wife has obviously never experienced that with food or she doesn't like alcohol, but um, I'm sure the alcoholic has never experienced that with alcohol. My eating, I've told the stories of my not being able to drink more than a glass and a half of really fine wine to alcoholics and they look at me as if I'm crazy. Uh, why wouldn't you drink all of what was available to you if it was that good? Frankly, I mean, they've been used to drinking rot gut, right? And, and here I have an opportunity to drink really good stuff and I, I don't want it. Um, this is a sense of what the normal is as opposed to what the abnormal is. For me, abnormality is developing this craving, this sense of ease and comfort when other people, normal people, develop a sense of unease and discomfort. As much as they enjoy it, they stop because their body doesn't want any more. And my body has never not wanted any more. Pardon that double negative for you English uh, majors. Um, the doctor says, he goes to the doctor's opinion, and he says it's not a problem of just mental control. On page XXX30 of the fourth edition and XXVIII28 of the second and third editions, he talks about, right at the top, he says, these men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. This craving is overcoming them. They cannot stop. And, and, it's this, and, and he goes on, he says, you know, we could classify all kinds of alcoholics. Um, uh, you know, there, there are people who are mentally ill. There are people who are in extreme state of denial. There's manic depressive. There are normal people. And he says, towards the bottom of that same page, the second last paragraph, all of these and many others have one, and, and I think he means only one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon 
on is what may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated, permanently gotten rid of. The only relief that we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And the concept that the doctor has, and that I, it took me six and a half years in this program to accept, is that there's something abnormal about my body that causes me to have cravings that are uncontrollable once I start. They're like blinking, they're like heart beating, they're like breathing. Well, uh, yeah, uh, even heart breathing, but certainly I can control my breathing for maybe 30 seconds, maybe even a minute if I'm good. And there's some people, I think the world's record is maybe five minutes. Uh, I can control my blinking for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, maybe even 40 seconds, but certainly not longer than 40 seconds. I can keep my eyes open for that long, but at a certain point, my body says, I don't care what you're trying to do, you're going to blink. Uh, I don't care what you're trying to do, you're going to breathe. Um, and I guess there are some people in this world who can, who can uh, slow their heart down, but can't stop it from beating. Uh, there are certain things our body does that overpowers any willpower that we have. And the doctor is talking about this in relation to alcoholics with alcohol. And I talk about it. And those of us who follow the big book in a way talk about it in relation to foods and compulsive eaters. What is going on in our bodies? Well, we're not medical experts and uh, we, we oughtn't to try to pr- provide any answer to this. Uh, there are many different descriptions of this and there's a lot of research that's being done. There are books that are written on uh, substances that, are, that, that the writers believe cause problems. There are, um, uh, you know, theories of, about metabolism and uh, whether or not the food metabolizes into sugars or into acids, uh, depending on the metabolism um, or what sugars become. Uh, there are uh, theories about uh, serotonin and dopamine and all these, or adrenaline or whatever it is that gives our, our minds a sense of keenness and edge and happiness. Um, uh, there are theories relating to the number of fat cells that uh, that people who have been fat have on their bodies. It's it's uh, uh, you know I I have more because I've been fat in my life and I'm not fat anymore. I have more fat cells than someone who is my weight uh, who never was fat. But these fat cells are empty, and the theory is they want more fat. You know, give me more. It, whatever it is, and and I I uh, I, I experience. My experience tells me the truth, and that is there have been when once I started, I couldn't stop. My crave began to be so heavy, so strong, that I could not resist my body. My body wanted more. This was unlike normal people. My body wanted more. Excuse me. Um, and this phenomenon, this unexplained occurrence, is something that has to be felt in the heart. We have to know and uh, that we have experienced that. You know, if, 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 I, I, I joined this program and I was, I don't know how much weight I lost because I had stopped weighing myself, but I've lost between, uh, I don't know, uh, between 50, 60 pounds and 80, 85 pounds, something like that. Um, I was on my way to having to lose 200 pounds and 300 pounds. Uh, but I hadn't yet reached that. And I, I guess it can be said that there were times when I did not experience the 
to not run craving, when I was able to eat normally, um, and my body didn't say more, more, more. Uh, what we have to, I was lucky to get into this program earlier, uh, luckier uh, than, than some, and, and, and certainly luckier than some people I know who have died without embracing the program, uh, partly because they would not accept the reality of this allergy of the body. Uh, I was lucky enough to be able to identify with this phenomenon of craving before I reached morbid obesity. And I, I think what's important is, is, is to ask yourself, if you're trying to test whether you are a compulsive eater, it's important to ask, have I ever experienced this? And do I see that this is a phenomenon that can occur at times? Uh, certainly as I got worse and worse, it began to occur more often. But in my earlier days of eating, it didn't occur all the time. I'd go on binges, but it wouldn't be constant. Uh, and friends of mine in the program are aware of times that they've been constant. It's happened to them constantly. What's important is whether we have that um, tendency, whether it happens to us at times. Now, before I go on to the second problem, the problem of the obsession of the mind, the problem of not being able to stop once I've started, I want to talk a bit more about the allergy of the body, and I want to talk a bit more and I want to talk at some length about the concept of um, developing a, a plan of eating. I won't talk a lot, but just a, a few concepts. If I accept that I do have this allergy of the body, that there have been times where my body has spoken and forced me to eat something that my mind said, I can't have this, I can't eat it, I can't eat it, Chew, 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 gulp, gulp, gulp. Uh, if there have been times when that has happened, then I have this allergy of the body. Now, how do I determine what I'm allergic to? The alcoholic, in that one sense, has it easy. The alcoholic knows that he or she is allergic to a liquid substance of ethyl alcohol, or whatever it is, ethanol, I don't know, whatever it is, alcohol. And that he or she cannot drink any of that in any form without getting this allergic reaction of the phenomenon of craving, which puts them back on the whole cycle of drinking more and more and more, because their body wants more once it gets some. The gambler knows you cannot start gambling without continuing to gamble. So you can't sort of fool yourself and think, well, you know, I mean, as many alcoholics, as many gamblers have done, I guess, who aren't members of Gamblers Anonymous, well, I'll, I'll, I'll pay off my debts and I, I won't gamble until I'm financially in good shape. And then I can just go to the casino and play $5 worth of slots. Uh, I mean, the, the gambler knows once he or she joins uh, GA, uh, I assume, that uh, you can't play $5 worth of slots before those slots become 20, 30, 40, 50, and you're, you're back to where you used to be and probably worse. Uh, same with the alcoholic, same with the drug addict. But with compulsive eaters, because we are overeaters anonymous and not sugarholics anonymous, saltaholics anonymous, flourholics anonymous, chocoholics anonymous, fataholics anonymous, because we don't have one particular substance. 
People say, oh, you know, alcoholics have it easy. They just don't drink, don't eat. And, of course, that's really not true because alcoholics have to drink. They just cannot drink alcohol, but they must get liquids within their bodies. And we have to eat, but we don't have to eat the foods that cause us um, allergies, that, that we're, uh, foods that we're allergic to. So it is important to do an analysis. And, and, and our group conscience has said that it's got to be an individual analysis. It cannot, you, you know, someone else's plan of eating uh, that works for them does not necessarily work for me. I know that in any OA gathering that I'm at, there are people who can eat what I can't eat, and I can eat things that they can't eat. Uh, there may be an overlap among many of us over what we can and can't eat, but for some of us, uh, there's no overlap at all. Some people cannot stop eating certain foods that I could easily stop eating uh, and, and not desire. So we have to do our individual analysis, and that is to develop a plan of eating that allows us to abstain from the substances that we're allergic to, the substances that cause us this phenomenon of craving. That's not an easy task. It requires us to be very honest with ourselves and to really, I, I would say, if you're just starting at this, to, to be honest with the person within the program as well. Uh, so that that person can try you on for size and see uh, wh how honest uh, you're being with yourself. Uh, probably it's, it's of great value to try it out with a nutritionist or, or, uh, or some expert in this, but I, the main thing is if they, if they believe that you can eat anything moderately, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, because the chances are if you have my problem, there are certain things you can't eat moderately uh, before developing phenomenon of craving. It is possible, though, because one of the things that our OA 12 and 12 suggests on pages 2 and 3 is that this cravings can occur not simply from foods, certain foods or food ingredients, but can also occur from certain eating behaviors. And I found this to be true for myself. I had developed a plan of eating that eliminated the foods that I knew were a problem, but I hadn't lost much weight. Uh, over six months uh, after I, I recovered and no longer wanted those foods. Um, and I started to figure out why I had lost weight. And I began to realize after having read uh, pages two and three of the OA 12 and 12, uh, that there were eating behaviors that caused me cravings. Behaviors that had little to do with what food I was eating, but more to do with how I was eating it. Um, I found that I had a, I developed cravings if I ate all the time. Um, as as uh, many suggested, they you know they eat carrots, eat celery, uh, eat hot air popcorn, eat non-caloric foods, chew gum uh, to keep your mouth busy, um, and that's what I was doing. But what that meant was, <coughs> excuse me, that my my saliva kept flowing, my chewing, my my jaw kept wanting to chew, my tongue kept wanting to feel things in the mouth. And uh, when I would eat foods that had calories, my, my regular meals, I would eat too much. Even though it was healthy food, I was eating too much of that food. Um, and and I, I, I know that uh, I, I just recently uh, uh, decided um, uh, to not to read while I'm eating. And this has a, a real effect on me. I, I find myself realizing I'm full much faster uh, than uh, when I read. Um, 
and, and so certain kinds of eating behaviors uh, cause me to eat more. And when I first started to analyze my eating behaviors, one of those eating behaviors was just chewing all the time, chewing, sucking, keeping the mouth busy. And I had to eliminate chewing gum, eating foods, uh, even non-caloric foods between meals. I couldn't exercise my mouth at all. Uh, I could drink things, but I couldn't do anything else. And that, that caused an immediate change in the amounts I was eating when I was eating things with caloric value. And the other uh, eating behavior I realized I had uh, was the need to feel completely full. Uh, I realized that that was a need that my body had and that I had to disabuse my body of that need. I had to stop before I was uh, full, before I felt full. Uh, and I developed ways of doing that. Some people do that by actually weighing and measuring food. I don't have other ways of doing that. But that's less important uh, than the concept that certain eating behaviors, I, I, you know, that cause us to eat more, uh, that are volume issues. You know, some people say, I'm, I'm not allergic to any particular food. I, uh, I can eat any foods. I can overeat any foods. Yes, that's entirely possible. Uh, there are, there are, that would be eating behaviors and not certain foods that might be the problem. With me, it's a combination of foods and eating behaviors. Uh, there are certain foods I can't start eating without not being able to stop eating. And there are certain eating behaviors I can't uh, um, indulge in without continuing to want to eat any foods. So there's, there's, there's volume issues, which are related to eating behaviors. And then there's food issues, which are related to specific foods. How do we develop a plan of eating that allows us to abstain from those foods? Uh, there are many ways of doing it. Uh, some people adopt a plan of eating that other people have developed. Um, might be good, might not be. It might eliminate foods that aren't, that don't cause cravings. That may not be significant because if they don't eat it, it doesn't matter. But it might also include foods that, um, that do cause uh, cravings. Uh, I know that there's a, there's a, has been a very popular um, um, plan of eating uh, uh, that allows you to eat bacon. Uh, I can't eat bacon. Uh, I, if, if I ate bacon, uh, I would develop tremendous cravings. I know that. Uh, so that that plan of eating is not one that, that I could follow in and of itself. So, uh, you know, what I suggest with sponsees is that they, they make a list of their trigger foods. They make a list of the foods that they have eaten and not been able to up. And they make a list of foods that they can't imagine ever giving up. Uh, you know, I, I, hate, I hate to do that to them because it sort of takes away all hope. Uh, but, uh, but really and truly, the foods that you can't imagine ever giving up are probably the foods that you should be giving up, at least for the moment. Uh, what I do, and, and I, I've got to say this now, is that the amazing miracle of the 12-step programs is that by the time we finish step nine, guaranteed we won't want to eat those foods again. They will become like rat poison to us. We will have a sane mind. And it won't be that we're giving them up. It will be that we, we, we realize, we think to ourselves with disgust, the thought of eating it gives us disgust. So I, I just wanted to give that hope to people. And, and what, what I do with uh, sponsees is help them develop their sense of uh, particular foods and also see if there are any 
common ingredients in the foods uh, that uh, that they've isolated. You know, I did that for myself, and and when I made my list of uh, addictive foods, uh, they had um, they were basically fat with a combination of sugar and fat with a combination of salt. Fat in combination with sugar and fat in combination with uh, salt, um, and and there are all kinds of food, therefore, foods, therefore, that I had to eliminate that weren't binge foods, but that could become binge foods because they contained fat in combination with salt and fat in combination with sugar, or were simply fat in and of themselves. Um, there are a lot of people who identify uh, other ingredients, and I, I, I don't argue with them, but I, I uh, do say that my experience with people who believe that sugar is their complete problem or that flour is their problem, or that sugar and flour is their problem, is that when they identify the foods that have led them to the conclusion that sugar is their problem, or that flour is their problem, they are eliminating, they are, they are identifying foods that also have a lot of fat in them. And the danger in eliminating foods with only sugar and only flour, uh, uh, the danger with that is if, in fact, it's also the fat in there that's causing the problem, you're still leaving yourself open to eating foods with fat in them that don't contain flour or don't contain sugar. And I, I've seen people um, who have been abstinent from sugar for 10 years, who've never lost any weight, who continue to, to devour foods made with butter, um, foods made with a great deal of fat, who put cream in their coffee, who put uh, you know, butter on their toast, but, oh, no, I don't eat sugar. Um, and, and if they really look at the foods that caused the problem, it wasn't hard candy. It wasn't granulated sugar. It was desserts. And desserts are a combination of sugar and fat. Uh, so I only give that warning. I would suggest that you look very carefully at what it is. But you develop a plan of eating that eliminates foods that cause cravings. And I'd be happy to help anyone uh, uh, and, and maybe uh, when we when we have questions, I, I can uh, give some assistance. Um, the the uh, the pamphlet Dignity of Choice, uh, the OA pamphlet, is a very good guide as well to developing a plan of eating. So I, I just make this digression uh, on developing a plan of eating because it's so related to the phenomenon of craving. Now I want to talk about the obsession of the mind. I already gave my examples of the reasons why I have gone back to food. Uh, the big book is very clear to talk about that as a mental obsession. An obsession is an idea that takes control of the mind to the exclusion of all. It is the idea, ultimately, the big book says in the uh, chapter, um, oh, let me find it just a minute. Uh, in the chapter more about alcoholism, which is devoted completely to this uh, subject, uh, chapter 3, page uh, 30. It is the idea, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker control and enjoy. I can eat this food in moderation and I can continue to eat in moderation. I can have, as the diet plan I was on for a number of years said, once I reached my maintenance weight, I 
can eat my goal weight. I could eat one scoop of ice cream a week. And that's what I did. I ate a scoop of ice cream a week, except the scoop became bigger. And I began to eat it just before and just after the weigh-in, if the weigh-in turned out okay. And then within six weeks, six months, I was scraping the bottom of the bowl again. Not only that, I, 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 they said one scoop of ice cream or two cookies or a half a donut. And I was eating the cookies and the ice cream and the donut. And soon I was back again to where I had been. Uh, my obsession is that I can both control and enjoy. I can have moderate amounts and still just be happy. But I can't because if I have the allergy of the body, if I develop this phenomenon of craving, once I ingest any parts of the foods I can, that cause this cravings, I can't enjoy it without eating all of it. Because my body wants more. I have this sense of unease and discomfort that I want to get a sense of ease and comfort from. I want to get this food back in my mouth. So the real problem we have is not that we have this physical problem. It is that we have a mind that persuades us that we don't have the physical problem. That's the key. Uh, by the way, those of you who are familiar with AA, the AA speakers, Joe and Charlie, will, will realize my indebtedness to them. I mean, I, I, I ought not to say things and, and make it sound as if I'm being original. This is Joe and Charlie stuff. And, and without them, I would never have accepted these concepts. Um, at any rate, this, this brilliant theory that Dr. Silkworth had, which is that not only do we have this abnormality of the body, this phenomenon of craving, but that we also have this mental obsession that keeps persuading us that we can have some. It's this theory that ultimately gave rise to the 12-step groups. The history of, of, of AA shows that. It was, it was Bill's knowledge of this theory coupled with the Oxford group's concept of how to have a spiritual experience and the experience of, of some that the spiritual experience allowed them to stay away from alcohol that uh, gave rise to uh, uh, the 12-step uh, program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the grandparent of, of, of us all. So the chapter more about alcoholism uh, gives a number of examples of people who have are overcome by the obsession, analyzes the obsession. And what's important, and I'm not going to go through the chapter, but I really recommend it. Uh, what's important is that the big book describes it as a mental obsession and gives examples of range from the deeply emotional someone has a day and, start, and has a drink as, after a bad day. Someone has a good day and wants to celebrate. Couples those with insanity. A, a, a person who was in front of um, the example of the jaywalker. Excuse me for a second. <clears throat> Excuse me. The example of the jaywalker they give is the person who just walks in front of trucks and gets a, gets a thrill out of it. Uh, and that's the same example uh, and they say, just apply it to the alcoholic, and you'll see it's exactly the same. Um, my examples of, uh, you know, they're all looking at me, I better have some, or they made it especially for me, are not examples of deeply emotional reasons why I go back. They're just stupidity. They're mental problems. They're mental obsessions. They're not emotional. Um, uh, 
but uh, uh, this is organic. These are just excuses. And the important thing that was important for me to understand is that it doesn't matter what the reason is. What matters is that I always have a reason. I always used to have a reason. And that reason can be the stupidest reason in the world, but it just overcomes all the good reasons I had for not doing it. Uh, Bill Wilson, the author of most of the big book, uh, describes in, in one of, in, in, in uh, I think it's AA Comes of Age, he, he's, he's a drunk and he's, but he's a great businessman and people hire him and say, you know, if you promise not to drink until we sign this particular contract, you'll be the president of the company. And he says, great, you know, I, I have an incentive now. I'm very poor. It's depression times. I just won't drink. Uh, and I can drink after I become the president. Three days away from his becoming president, three days away from the contract being, being he's in a hotel room. There's a bunch of guys around. A guy brings out a big uh, jug of, uh, and he says, boys, this is Tennessee Applejack whiskey. Uh, you can't get it in, in uh, wherever they were. I forgot what t- uh, state they were in. You can't get it here. Uh, it was prohibition time anyway. Um, have some. So he passes the jug around and Bill said, oh, I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. Uh, and they pass it a second time around. I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. Passes the third time. And as Bill is ready to pass it on to the next person, the guy says, well, it's Tennessee uh, Applejack whiskey. It certainly is unique. Oh, okay, says Bill. And he drinks it. And this is similar to situations I've encountered, not quite the same, but, you know, uh, you're in this town and, and, and uh, this particular chef is well known for this particular dish or, or, you know, you're in New Orleans and you have to have whatever it is that they have in New Orleans. I've forgotten how to pronounce that, which I never had. Because <laughs> the only time I was in New Orleans, I was uh, a happy member of OA. Um, but it, it, it's, 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 it's that it's a mental phenomenon. And so often we hear in our program that we are physically, emotionally, and spiritually sick. And I'm sure that's true. But by concentrating on emotionally and not mentally, we leave out the absolute truthful experience of most of us. The absolutely truthful. We leave out the experience of most of us, probably all of us, that sometimes we've gone back to eating for no good reason whatsoever. Um, they're not, not because we're feeling any deep emotions. And not because we were in bad emotional shape, but simply because, because. Uh, the big book describes this on page 37. Uh, they say, uh, almost in the middle, about a third of the way down the page, there was always a curious mental phenomenon. Remember, a phenomenon is in the, it is in the current explanation. There was always a curious mental phenomenon that, parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably, there always ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. And I, I've always likened it because I grew up in an age of Disney cartoons. Uh, Disney always used to have sort of the good angel and the bad angel on, on either shoulder of Mickey or of Goofy or of Pluto. I don't think Donald ever had the, had one. And, you know, the, the Mickey good angel would be saying, I mean, if, if I had the angels on me um, and I'm, I'm given this food, um, you know, a piece of shortbread or goose skin or whatever. And uh, the good angel was saying, now, don't have this. This is bad for you. Remember all the times in your life that you started to eat this food and then you found yourself unable to stop eating until it's all gone. Remember how fat you used to be. Remember what the illnesses are that you could be suffering. 
debilitating meaning horrible uh, of the life of a, of a of a fat person and how close you are to doing it just don't do it just say no it's reasonable to say no it's it's not good for you that's on the one side that's the good angel speaking reasonably and clearly and reminding me of all these these horrible experiences i've had in the past and on the other side is the bad angel and i think that bad angel is ultimately saying just one word come on that's one word. It's not come on. It's come on. Come on. You know, have some. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Whatever excuse, what, however you want to categorize that excuse, it is just the stupid reason. And suddenly, parallel. I've got these two parallel ideas. One is sane and sound and reasonable, and the other is as stupid as come on. It will other people are doing it. Um, you know, they're looking at you. Uh, um, they made it especially for you. You're sad. You're happy. You're lonely. Too many people love you. You were good today. You're on your way. Whatever it is, your mind is powerless over that. And that, to me, is the brilliance of the 12-step programs. The analysis the problem, the analysis of the problem. It speaks to my experience that on the one hand, once I start, I can't stop. And on the other hand, I come up with some excuse, whether deeply emotional or insanely trivial, for going back. On my own, I cannot control my mind. And, and that's a fact. I mean, uh, you know, I, uh, there's a famous example of, I'll, I'll pay you $20,000 if you, don't think of the words for 20 seconds. I will win that bet because no matter how much you try to control and keep your mind busy and not think of the word rhinoceros, there'll be a part of your mind that will say to yourself, and I'm not thinking of the word rhinoceros um, because you cannot control more than two or three or four levels of your mind. Uh, and there's always another level above that one. So deep down, you cannot control your mind. And if you have this obsession of the mind, it will come forward and it will allow you to forget all the good reasons you've had in your life for uh, not eating. So <clears throat> if we have this truth about ourselves, that once we start, we can't stop. And even if we've stopped, we can't stop from starting again. Then we are in what the doctor called a double whammy. We're in a complete vicious circle. We will go through the cycle of dieting and breaking the diet, and dieting and breaking the diet. And for compulsive eaters, it's even harder in certain ways uh, than it is for drug addicts and, and gamblers and, uh, and um, uh, alcoholics. Because eating is, the, is, is, a, is almost fetishized, if, if there's, I think that's a word, um, as I mean, there's a, there are movie, uh, TV channels relating to it. Uh, eating is still, and overeating is a socially acceptable phenomenon, uh, more so than alcohol and uh, gambling and uh, and drugs are. And um, coupled with that, I mean, and there's a huge industry related to encouraging that. And coupled with that, is that there don't appear to be many supposed experts on the subject. Uh, all the magazines that contain diets, all the nutritionists and doctors, they don't seem to be many who even accept the 
that there's something abnormal about our bodies. They do with alcohol. They do with, well, they may not with gambling, but they do see the concept that never gambling, that only gambling a little bit isn't good enough. Um, they see it with drugs, but they certainly don't see it with uh, compulsive eating. And so we're facing a world in which there seem to be solutions for our problem that do not involve giving up the substances that cause us the abnormal physical reaction of craving. And so our minds are, it's even easier for our minds to be persuaded that we can go back to eat it. When every diet tells us once you lose your weight, you can eat anything in moderation. Or when eating disorder clinics say, uh, you've got to eat everything. Uh, it's the same thing. There are some things that people who are bulimic or anorexic probably shouldn't be eating because that caused them the phenomenon of craving that, that gave them some problems. We talk about that, who are going between anorexia and bulimia because the only answer they have, they haven't identified the foods that cause them, that cause them uh, problems or the eating behaviors that cause them problems. I, I don't want to get into that too much. So that's the double point. And if we accept the notion that we cannot get out of it ourselves, that we're in a vicious circle, then we're doomed. We're powerless in and of ourselves. And now I'll just end with two minutes of hope. Because if we are completely powerless ourselves, then we are doomed to compulsive eating for the rest of our lives. Unless we find a program that provides us a power greater than ourselves. That is what step two describes, the hope of this program. And there are thousands of us in OA, millions of us in 12-step programs around the world, who are able to say, I used to have this mental obsession, and I no longer have it now. I look at the substance or the eating behavior that used to cause me problems, and I now look at it as something that's poisonous to me, that I, that I do not want to indulge in. I'm immune to that so long as I practice and continue to practice the 12 steps of my particular program. I can be surrounded as I am with all kinds of foods that used to beckon to me and not want them. I can watch other people eat those foods and not want them. And that is a freedom that is beyond anything I've ever thought of as a miracle. For me, it's an absolute miracle to, to watch other people enjoy foods that I used to not be able to stop eating and not want to start eating them is an absolute miracle. It's something I could never have accomplished on my own, something that I needed to find a higher power to accomplish. And that's what the journey of the 12 steps is all about. So for those of you, if, if I have helped you at all today, it is to encourage you to look at yourself, if you're like me, as a person who has an allergy to the body, the obsession of the mind, who can't stop once he or she has started and can't stop from starting again, to feel absolutely hopeless in and of yourself, and perhaps to encourage you to pursue the hope that is the 12 steps of, of Overeaters Anonymous. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lori for your revealing and transforming study this morning of the double whammy, the grave nature of our illness. Thank you so much for your time and your energy here on the line. Before we open the floor for questions, Lori, can we get your contact information? Oh, yes. Um, uh, well, I, actually, I wanted to... Uh, 
suggest if it wants to get hold of me, there's a, a web page uh, that contains a book I've written that describes a lot of this, uh, uh, some forms for doing step four, um, uh, and some podcasts. Um, and it's oabigbook.info. And on that page, you can find um, a place to click on to email me. Um, my name's not on that page, but but uh, but if you click on, uh, you know, to get hold of the, uh, you know, to provide comments or anything, and it's um, uh, uh, so it's oa big book, all one word, oa b i g b o o k dot info i n f o, and um, or you can just email me at laurie l a w r i e l a w r i e at oa big book dot info i n f o. I'm happy to get uh, emails and 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 I can if if you need I can arrange phone calls as well to that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now we open the floor for questions this morning. You can press star one to unmute. Identify Is there yourself. a phone number? Did he give a phone number or just the email? Just the email. Uh, I did not Thank give you a phone much. number. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, any questions related to what was? Presented this, this morning. Simma, go ahead. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to find out um, what the. I have to hang up now. And what is the number if I want to listen to this again? The oh, conference okay. number. Okay. I, I will provide that information. Um, of course, this recording can be found on a Vision for You website. That's a vision for you dot info. That's A V I S I O N the number four Y O U dot I N F O. The share ID for this morning's presentation is five seven two four. And at the conclusion of the meeting I will give all this information. I don't want to take up time now from quest for questions. Any questions on the line regarding what was presented this morning? Star one to unmute, please. Yes, this is Kendall. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I have a question, please. Go ahead, Kendall. Go ahead. Okay. So my question is, and thank you so much for your service this morning. This has been so helpful. Um, what Hello? Kendall, star one to unmute. We lost you. Okay. Am I back? Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, what is the best abstinent plan for somebody who says they can binge on any food at all? It, does the abstinence then become not not overeating, or what? I mean, what? I have a sponsee with that situation, and I don't know what to tell her. Okay. Well, I I mean I I do I I I would always probe them because my guess is that there's there are some secret foods there, but let's assume that it's true that that person has just a volume addiction <clears throat> in a sense. I, I would say that the, the eating behaviors have to be, <clears throat> I'm very sorry, they have to be analyzed. And uh, it, it may be uh, simply to say that your problem is that you put too much on your plate or that you go back for seconds or that you are um, uh, chewing too quickly or, or uh, you have to weigh and measure. I mean, certainly for someone with a volume addiction, I would say that some form of measuring is important, whether it be as simple as only one plate's worth and not going back for seconds and leaving something on the plate, or whether it be um, uh, actually literally uh, measuring and weighing uh, the food. But but I would use that. I would. I mean, clearly, 
that's an important thing. But my, my, and, and, and if that's what that person thinks is the problem, then, then I would say, let's go with that first. I, I would always go with what the sponsee says. As long as the sponsee is being honest, I would go with that, take them through the steps, get them over that hurdle, and then see whether they're losing their weight or getting the weight, depending what the problem is. Uh, and if they're achieving a, a, a healthy body weight, maybe that is the only issue. If they're not, or if they still find themselves fighting it and with white knuckling abstaining, then I would say, let's start looking at your food as well. Are there some foods which you're holding on to uh, that you shouldn't be? Uh, I would also, by the way, in step four, uh, when they do step four and they work out resentments, I would ask them to write down, am I being honest with my food as a principle? Because that, that allows them to think about that issue in the, in, at a time when they're trying to be honest with themselves. Hope that helps, Kendall. I have a question. Thank you, Kendall. Yes, go ahead. I, I have a question. Thank you so much, Lori. Um, I really don't understand um, the uh, all the, the two whammies. So it was. I really have fought to understand this. I think I got a that much clearer understanding. This is something you didn't talk about, but I just wanted your take on this. I hear in the programs that people have withdrawals, you know, when they go off of a um when they go off of the sugar and the flour. I have never had that experience, so I don't but I have never been a sugar addict, but obviously I um definitely, you know, had loved the butter, had loved um all the fattening um anything, you know. And um, so I wanted to ask you, um, does a person uh, have to have a withdrawal to be a compulsive overeater? And um, the other thing I wanted to ask no. you was... No, I mean, I, clearly not. There's, you know, the, the answer is clearly not, because there's no discussion of that in, in, in our... There's no group conscience on that issue. Um, and I may tell you that the only... Uh, I've never experienced the withdrawal symptoms from any food that I've, uh, I've abstained from. Oh, Thank you, thank you. And then the other thing I just want to ask you is, I just seem to want to crave everything. I can't imagine what, you know, what I think is what is not my binge food. There's nothing that I can think of, even though I'm on a very strict program now. I still want more of that thing. Can you um, uh, say anything to that as to how I would define my binge foods when I feel it's everything? Well, first, let me ask you, are, are radishes among the foods that you can't stop eating? Probably. I'm a big veggie eater. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, I'm not saying, it, uh, I'm not saying uh, that I couldn't you, you, because obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm obese and I'm not morbidly, I'm like four or 500 pounds, so obviously I've stopped. But, boy, if I could, and I was just discussing this with my husband, if I could from morning to night eat all day, I would want to do that. I think it's, you know. <laughs> okay. You, you may have my problem, uh, which is the need to keep chewing all the time uh, and the need to be filled, to have the sort of the hole filled. And those are two problems that I had that I had to abstain from. So I do not eat between meals because I know that if I ate between meals, my body would do, be continuing that craving to uh, like I enjoy food in the mouth. I enjoy the, the touch and the smell and the, and the taste of it even before it goes in. And, and, and that's true for any food. I love to crunch. I love creamy. 
um, and 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 so all the time, even if it was non-caloric foods, like you know certain vegetables and stuff, uh, I would continue to want to eat because my eating behavior is to want to chew and suck and masticate and you know just have all this all the experiences before it even reaches my stomach. The other uh, 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 eating behavior I had that I identified early on was the need to be full. And since I never was full, because I never knew what it was like to be full, I had to find a way to limit the amount of food that went into me. Uh, because, and I had, and, 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 you know, I have friends who say that that means that they, well, for them, they weigh and measure. They have the same problem. I, find, I found another way. I, I, I'm not going to talk about it in, in, in great length here. But, but that, may be, that may be what you're experiencing, that you're eating healthy foods but you you are uh, still experiencing the need to chew and to and, and and to have the the experience of eating and also the need to be filled up which never occurs having said that i also want to say that it may be that within your eating plan if you've adopted it from someone else you may still have included certain foods specific foods that cause a problem uh, for you but not for the person who gave you the plan of eating so however strict your plan of eating may be, it may still allow certain foods that you shouldn't be eating because those particular foods may cause cravings in you. Those are two possibilities there, and I, can't, I don't know which or both of those might be true, but one of, uh, one or, uh, of them is certainly true if you still uh, uh, have that, 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 that bodily need. If it's just a mental need that you just wanted and wanted, then the answer is the steps. The steps will get rid of the mental need. I want to make a distinction between the body talking and the mind talking. You know, people will often talk about the the mental craving. It, it's not. It's a mental obsession. The craving is physical. The obsession is mental. The, the words that are used in the big book. And and I don't want to. The words don't have much meaning. So let's let's talk about it from experience. On the one hand, it's the body that's saying more, more, more. And on the other hand, it's the mind that's saying, despite the fact that I haven't had any for a while, I want some now. And those are two distinct phenomena. And I, I really want to, exp uh, those, that, that difference is crucial to an understanding of the problem and of the solution. Does that help? Very helpful. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you, Mary, Thank for you. the question. Who's next? Questions Hi, Lori. for Lori. Yes. Uh, Leah. Hi, Leah. Good morning. It's, it's Mary Mary Lou from Southern California. Hi, Mary Lou. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. Good, oh, good is morning. it early for you? Yes. Go I, to sleep. I, <laughs> <laughs> no, I weigh over 200 pounds. I don't want to go to sleep. I want to live. But anyway, um, <laughs> I love listening to your talks on um, Vision for You. For the I listen to you talk uh, while I'm cleaning the kitchen and while I'm doing all these things around the house. I've been listening to you and all the other people on the special edition for about a year now. And I, I come from... I'm 44, and I come from about 14 years of 12-step recovery food programs. From I went to a couple of OA meetings in my early 30s, and I went in, and I saw a lot of people getting comforted, and there were over 300, 400 pounds, 200 pounds, and maybe one person was absent in that OA room. And I went back a couple times because they were so loving. So I got a lot of love and a sense of belonging, and I really loved going there but there was no physical recovery and I'm, you know at that point 30 years old and 250 pounds no 290 at that time and um and suffering um 
So then I leave and I go to the, and, and this is, I'll be quick with it, but it's getting to a question, a very important one, I think. Um, and then I went to CEA How, which was weighed and measured. And I weighed and measured, lost 100 pounds, ran some marathons, got a boyfriend, got some gifts, stopped sponsoring, stopped weighing and measuring, got real funny with my food, and gained the weight back. Never, did a lot of questions through CEA How that were out of the big book. A lot of questions, a fourth and fifth step, but not with the format that is in the big book with the columns and the fear inventory, the sex inventory. It was like a an organized question a day type thing, and you got through the yeah. steps. And Mary Lou, in the interest of time, could we get to your question, please? Yeah. So then, Thank you so yes. much. So then I went to FA, and there was a lot of physical recovery there, and um, a lot of... I guess my question here is, and it's been a lot of suffering for me coming back in and listening to Big Book and not having a solid food plan, so I got one from a nutritionist. Now, my question to you is, in your early days, Lori, when you were doing the steps and you got the thought, you weren't through the steps yet. You're going through the Big Book. You have a food, weighted measured food, or whatever, however you do your food, food plan. And you got the thought, and you're not through the steps yet. You got the thought, I want to eat. I want to. I want to have this thing. What would you do in that moment to not do that action and not eat? Good question. I, I, and 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 when I sponsor people, I always say that uh, I, I I help them to develop three plans for themselves. One is a plan of eating, so that they know what abstinence is for them, and they know what they can and can't eat, and they know what eating behaviors they can't indulge in. Um, the second thing is a general timeline for working the steps. And, and those of you who have heard me before know that I, I believe that the big book gives instructions that allow you to do the steps relatively quickly within six weeks to, to on step nine so that you, you, you develop that sense of freedom that I, I've had for over 20 years now. And so we develop a timeline uh, to sort of say, okay, by the, by the next two months, I hope to develop this, this, and this. Sometimes I even encourage them to make a step five appointment um, right away, uh, you know, like within three weeks or four weeks so that they have something to aim for. And, and that in and of itself gives them a sense of hope. Uh, you know, so that second plan gives them a sense of hope that they don't have to do it forever. They just have to do it for uh, two months or a month or three months or whatever. And the third plan uh, is a strategy for what they're going to do on a day-to-day basis uh, to, to keep from, to keep abstaining. And I always say to them, I'm available to you 24 hours a day. Uh, if you want to phone me at 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning, I will talk to you. And not only will I talk to you, I'll go out and see you. If you tell me you're about to eat a donut, I'll go out and we'll, 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 we'll meet. Uh, because I think that's what any alcoholic would do for an alcoholic who was about to have a beer. Um, and uh, no one has ever taken me up on that, but, uh, but I'm available. I say, if, if you've already eaten, call me in the morning, and we'll figure out what the problem is. Um, so. Uh, you know, uh, you know, read, uh, uh, write. Uh, my answer is do a step. You know, my answer is if you're about to eat, why aren't you on step four? <laughs> you know, and, and why aren't you uh, working it through? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Because for me, the answers come from the steps, not from any other parts of our program. Uh, but there are also the tools of recovery, which provide uh, ways to keep busy during while you're 
while you're fighting the, uh, you know, while you're working the steps, you know, uh, getting active in your group, uh, uh, making sure that you go to a lot of meetings, uh, phoning people. I always will say to people, people say, well, can I phone my food into you? And I'll say, well, why phone it into me? Why not phone it into a newcomer or phone it into someone suffering? That way you're helping each other. Ask them for permission that you can phone them every day uh, because you'll be helping them as well as they'll be helping you. Uh, and, and often people will do that and they'll phone in their food. So whatever it is, I, I, I used to say to myself early on, I used to say, I will eat this in 10 minutes. And of course, the 10 minutes never came. Uh, I would say, I'll, I'll leave this for my sponsor. I'll take it home with me. I'll eat it tomorrow. And that somehow provided me with some kind of um, uh, mental stupid <laughs> solution. I don't know if that helps. Thank you, Mary Lou, for the question. Uh, thank you. I, my name is Janice. I have uh, two things, please. Go ahead, Janice. Thank you very much, Lori. Um, one is um, I was experiencing exactly what you were talking about um, the other day. I was invited um, for a Shabbos meal, and I was drinking the person's soup, and it was just so delicious. I thought I could have eaten the whole... Um, um, pot plus three more pots, and you know I was curious. You know what's the brand? You know, finally find out the person put in butter and uh, honey in it, and whoever knows what else. So you, you've given me um, some ideas that maybe uh, besides sugar, which I know I'm highly allergic to, maybe you know. Um, the butter or whatever else she put in the soup made me just like so crave, you know, into craving and obsession in that moment. I don't know if you have a comment yeah, on well, that. I can't, no, I can't eat butter. I mean, I, I know that. I can, I can eat some fats, uh, like olive oil and stuff like that, that don't cause cravings, but high-fat dairy product kills me. So yeah, I stay I away from all, all high-fat dairy products. Yeah, I didn't know that, so yeah, you just said that. Just the, other, the other thing is... Um, my whole life, I was a compulsive um, overeater, binger. But 17 years ago, my mother got very sick, and she was on the verge of dying. May she rest in peace. Um, I started restricting and starving. And so now I do that, too, that behavior uh, when I'm stressed. I know you said you didn't want to talk about anorexia. And, and I'm new with the vision for you. I, I've heard here and there the half a dozen times I've listened, maybe the question is not just for you, but for Leo or whomever, that are there some sponsors who've also had anorexia and have worked a uh, vision for you and, and gotten um, recovery? I know the answer to that question is yes, uh, but I, 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 Leo can probably give you more information on that. Could I be put in touch? Um, uh, at some point, please, because I don't know who to select. Because Janice, uh, yes. <laughs> Good morning, and I'm great, happy to know you're here. After the conclusion of this recording, we'll get your information. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much for the question. Okay. Any? Uh, I, I will make else? one comment. Yes, go ahead, Lori. Well, uh, I just want to make. I just want to make one comment. It, you know. One of the issues that I, I do want to talk about, I don't want to talk about it as part of my talk, but is that uh, because eating disorders uh, are, are a sort of a medical uh, uh, thing, 
the bulimic and the anorexic are, are linked together because somehow they're both eating disorders. And I want to I distinguish between a person who eats like a pig and gets rid of the food and a person who doesn't eat. Um, a bulimic and I have nothing different about us except the bulimic hides it better than I do, or I used to. Um, and, and, and so I, I, you know, the bulimic, it seems to me is a, is a, is an overeater uh, who simply hides it by virtue of however that person purges. And certainly, so to link the bulimic and the anorexic together because they're both undernourished, it, it seems to me is, is, uh, is quite medical, uh, but it doesn't seem to me to fit well in, 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 in with this particular model of, of the, uh, of the double whammy. The anorexic, there are many different kinds of anorexics. The ones I've met in the program who have really uh, understood the program, uh, felt it in their bones, have been those who used to overeat and turned to anorexia as a solution for overeating, and, um, and as opposed to those who have never overeaten in, in their lives. The ones who have overeaten and have turned to anorexia, uh, not eating as a solution, can often be helped by simply saying certain foods that cause you to overeat and not other foods. And let's work out a plan of eating that makes sense for you. And as well, there are eating behavior issues as well. And there are the other anorexics who have never overeaten and can't immediately identify with the stories that I, for instance, tell of overeating. Certainly uh, have, there are, there are many, I'm sure there are many, or certainly some I've met in the program who have been able to use this program uh, to, to recover as well. Uh, but it seems to me that they experience something different. Uh, and, and, and that's been my discussion with some of them, that it is different. Um, they, they use the program. God bless them. I, I, and I, I, I think it's wonderful that they do. But they cannot identify with the stories of overeating, the ones who have never overeaten themselves. Anyway, that's my, my take on it. Okay? Thank you, Lori, very much. Anyone else with questions for Lori this morning? Star one to unmute. Um, I have a question. This is Margaret. Margaret, hold on. Who who did I hear? Debbie from New York. Debbie and then Margaret, please. I just wanted to know if you could give us your phone number. That contact um, information I, will be repeated after the conclusion of this recording. Thank you very yeah. much. Margaret, I just want go to explain, ahead. I want to explain. Okay, I just want to explain. I don't want to give my telephone number because it's also my wife's telephone number, and I, I like to make appointments to speak to people. I have so many correspondents from all over the world that I, I make appointments. If they email me, I can make appointments. Thanks. Thank you, Lori. And, of course, we'll give out that email address at the conclusion of this recording. Margaret. And if everybody else could stay muted, please, except for Margaret. Thank you very much. Margaret, go ahead with your question. Margaret, star one to unmute. Can you hear me now? Yes. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Two questions. One is regarding alcohol. Lori talks about being able to drink wine or beer without it being a problem, which has been my experience too, but there are people who always tell me that 
um, you know, not to use it in your cooking because it's sugar, that sort of thing. But it's never been an issue for me. And I just wanted a confirmation on that, I guess. The other one is whether the... I have a whole collection of cookbooks that I like to peruse and read. And I don't know that they're a trigger for me, but I do know that sometimes I spend a lot of time looking at my cookbooks. Could that be um, an issue? Is it an issue for people sometimes? Thanks. I, I've, uh, sure it could be an issue, and I've never encountered it. Uh, so I, I don't have an answer. And, and if I were you, I'd put that on my step four list and figure it out whether it's a problem for you. Um, I mean, I do all kinds of things. Uh, you know, I'm, well, I, I, you know, I, well I, I don't have an answer to that question. Um, the other thing is, uh, well, I mean, I, I do drink wine. And I do drink beer because it's not a problem for me. Okay. Thank you. So, uh, you know, and, and I, I must say that I think anyone who tries to impose his or her notion of a plan of eating on someone else is that, well, I, I know that person is acting contrary to the group conscience of OA as shown in the pamphlet A Dignity of Choice, which says you should have it as an individual. Accepting someone else's plan of eating might not fit your problem. And, you know, I, I, there's, there's a lot of control issues in, in, in OA, as there is, I guess, in any 12-step program, because we're all a bunch of uh, controllers. Um, and and I, I think I would be very wary of taking someone else's plan of eating on other than as a suggestion that might assist me in analyzing and making my own analysis. So, anyway. Thank you. Thank and there are no rules in OA. We are not, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, Sugarholics Anonymous, Fatoholics Anonymous, or anything. We all have our own issues. One of my great mentors in this program can have a pat of butter when he goes out to eat at a restaurant. I can't. You know, that pat of butter doesn't do anything for him. But it, it, for me, it would be the start of a, of a, of a, of a, of a binge. So. Thank you, Margaret, for the questions. And we have time for one more question here on the line this morning. This is Denise in Tennessee. Go ahead, Denise. Hi. I really enjoyed your, your share. Um, I just have a question. Uh, right currently, I am not abstinent. I, I struggle, and I wanted to hear um, the speaker address. When you first got abstinent, um, did you have to walk away from a lot of your social situations and your friends? And, you know, I find that all my friends are are either eaters or when I'm around them, I tend to overeat or there's just social situations that I feel like I have to walk away from, and yet I don't want to leave my friends. So could you address that? That's a tough one. I, I, um, I, I did not find I had to leave them, but I found I had to be vigilant. I had to develop a plan of eating that made it clear what I couldn't eat and when I couldn't eat it. And I would often eat before, like I had, when I, Three meals could be six meals. I don't care. But as long as it's, uh, for me, it was three meals a day, nothing in between. I would generally eat before I went out with my friends so that I knew I couldn't eat anything. It was a lot easier than figuring out what I could and couldn't eat in the midst of all these, uh, all these other pressures. The, the other thing is, and I really do recommend, uh, I forgot what page it is. I'll find it in a minute. There's a wonderful part of the big book where they talk about, um, what to keep in mind 
when you go out to a social occasion. And I think that is on page uh, 101 and 102. It says, it says, I mean, first of all, they do say, in our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. Um, if the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually ends up with a bigger explosion than ever. We have tried these methods. Uh, these attempts to do the impossible have always failed. Uh, and, and by the way, I note that in the, uh, as, in, as Bill sees it, Bill you said, release from alcohol and not flight from it is our answer. So he says, so our rule is not to avoid a place where there's drinking or where there's eating if we have a legitimate reason for being there. And the next paragraph, he says, you will note we've made an important qualification. Ask yourself on each occasion, have I any good social business or personal reason for going to this place? Or am I expecting to steal a little vicarious pleasure from the atmosphere of such places? And for me, that was significant. Why am I going out with my friends? For instance, if that were a problem for me, my answer would be because I love my friends and I have a good personal reason for being with them is I want to give them love and I want to receive love or whatever, companionship, whatever it is. And that's, I'm not going there to eat. I'm not going there to drink. I'm going there to be with those people whom I love. Uh, and once I know why I'm there, then eating is much less of an issue with me. So those two things. And frankly, um, uh, I would also, if, if I knew it were really difficult, I would have a buddy uh, on the line and I would say, I, I got to make sure that I can call you up if I feel even slightly tempted. And if I felt even slightly tempted, I would call that person up. I would run to my phone and, 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 uh, and call it. So I'd, I'd have strategies. But in the end, you might have to say, I cannot go to places while I'm working. Once you work step nine, you won't, you won't have to worry about this. Okay? You get abstinent, you work the steps. Once you work step nine, you won't have to worry uh, because you're, you will be released. But in between, maybe there comes, you know, maybe you'll have to stay away. I, I don't know. But my, my first answer would be to can't and uh, uh, and and to nurse a club soda. <laughs> thank you, Denise, for the question. And again, I have a bit more time. Oh, do you? How much time is a bit more? I have a bit. Uh, another fifteen minutes if, if people want to ask questions. I mean, it, there's got to be a time when people get a little tired, but I'm I'm okay. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Lori. We've had over two hundred and seventy-five people on the line this morning. So. Wow. We appreciate your message. Hi, this is Debbie from New York. Hi, Debbie. Go ahead. Your turn. Hi. Good morning. I just was wondering, I've been really struggling. I have like four or five clean days, and then, um, I don't know, I have resentment. I don't find a sponsor. I find sponsors, but the timing don't work out. It's just really bad luck finding a sponsor. And then I'll go on binges for like weeks and weeks, get very sick until I get a few clean days. Isn't it long to start the steps? on my own if I don't have a sponsor if the alternative is binging my brains out. I mean, I went to an AA meeting on day four because I really wanted to pick up. I didn't have a sponsor and someone said something at the AA meeting that pissed me off and I came home and I binged and I'm just wondering, I don't have any luck finding a sponsor. Is it wrong to start the steps on my own until I find someone? My answer is based on the big book. The big book was written for people who did not have sponsors available to them, and it contains directions for doing the steps that don't require a sponsor. 
the, the website oabigbook.info uh, has uh, a book that explains, uh, available for, to download for free, uh, has a book that explains how the big book's directions work. Um, so my answer is you don't need a sponsor, although, boy, it would be good to get one. That's, you know, uh, it's, it's helpful. But I often, I mean, people have sometimes asked me to sponsor them by long distance, and I've never been really successful with that. Uh, but you find one other person in your neighborhood that you can meet, not, you know, in environs that you can meet face-to-face with, and you both work together, uh, I'd be happy to give you advice on how to work the steps. Uh, but, uh, and that often works for people. I, I had not recovered when I worked the steps the Big Book way, and the person I was working with had not recovered. We worked together. We studied the Big Book. We followed the directions. We recovered. Uh, recovery is your responsibility, and it's not anyone else's. If you become dependent upon a sponsor, you're not going to become dependent upon a higher power. Uh, so from, from my understanding of the Big Book, uh, the answer is yes, you can work the steps without a sponsor. It's more difficult. It's more cumbersome, but it's not beyond reach. I mean, when, when the big book was, uh, was written, there were uh, approximately 100 recovered AAers in, um, in uh, Akron and, and Cleveland and, and, and New York. People recovered using the big book without meeting those people. They didn't have sponsors. So that's my answer. Thank you, Debbie, for the question. Who's next? Hi, this is Kate in Pittsburgh. Is there a time for my... Go ahead, Kate, with your question. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, Lori. Thank you so much. Your your sharing was amazing and just so clear and concise. And um, my question to you, Lori, is I um, I found recovery in another program, and then um, basically through through working the steps in the Big Book, um, found relief from my eating disorder and like felt recovered and was taking other people through the steps. And then I had an instance where I went away, I was out of the country, um, you know, and it's my honeymoon and this and that. And then I, uh, the mental obsession returned on that trip. And I, you know, thought that I could eat things like a normal person. And um, what has been, you know, you're, what would you say to to this instance where, you know, I was thoroughly convinced of being relieved of the mental obsession and then being, you know, although I was on my trip reading, you know, reading the pages out of the big book and uh, trying to be helpful to people, uh, trying to email on my phone and stay connected, doing whatever I thought that I could, but then still picking up. Like, what do you, can I ask you that? Yep, I, I I encounter that a lot, and I have two answers. Both one of them related to the allergy of the body, and the other related to the obsession of the mind. The answer is, that if you have my problem, and it sounds like you do, then either you, or you your plan of eating includes foods, food ingredients, or eating behaviors that cause you cravings, and you don't you aren't aware of it. So your body is taking back what it wants, and you, it's worthwhile examining. The, your plan of eating to make sure that you have, in fact, eliminated those things that cause you cravings, and or there's a step you haven't been working. Uh, if you if you did uh, uh, because either either the allergy of the body is kicking up or the obsession of the mind came back. 
if the obsession of the mind came back, then uh, it, it may be that there's a step you're not working. My experience, and one of the reasons I relapsed for six or seven years in this program, was that I did not understand step 10. Um, I understood step 10 to be apologize when you're wrong. Um, I, I now understand step 10 to be steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, all done whenever I feel restless, irritable, or discontented, or when food becomes a little tempting. And I actually take out the forms, and I'm doing one right now, actually. I'm, I'm going to be doing my step five in a, five days. Um, uh, I, and I'm, I'm mildly restless, mildly irritable, and mildly discontent, not even really bad. But, uh, but I, I, I know it's time for me to do a step 10. And I do step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And, um, uh, and, and then I'm clean. Uh, I discovered that when I read step 10 off the wall as just being when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I was apologizing to my kids for yelling at them, but I wasn't figuring out why I was yelling at them. And it had nothing to do with them. It was all kinds of other things that were going on in my life that I hadn't dealt with. So that's, that's one thing. The other is it's not clear to me. Uh, if, if you're in OA now, that's fine. If you recovered in another program and are just in that other program, then the difference between OA and any other 12-step program is first in step one, what you're powerless over, but also in step 12, I have found, uh, well, my friends who are in double or triple or quadruple programs have found that they have to carry the message to people in each of their programs in order to keep the program, keep their own power. I don't know if that helps you. I hope it does. Thank you, Kate, for your question. Anyone else? Questions for Lori this morning? Star one Hi, time this you. is Sandy. Sandy, your turn. It, it this is, is Maria. Sandy and then Maria, please. Okay. Um, I'm new, and I got some very good advice Friday on Visions for You with a suggestion that I ask that um, – I couldn't find a sponsor. I'm I'm kind of referring to the person uh, next before last. Um, if she's still on, um, let me see if I, I'm kind of nervous. So I've got I got to think how to put my words out there. Uh, I've never talked out loud on a phone met, a meeting. Uh, so then I said at nine o'clock uh, my name and that I couldn't find a sponsor. However, is there anyone that would be willing to just read with me each day and then we could just talk about what we read and that's better than not doing anything because I wasn't doing anything by myself because I can't do this by myself. Hi Debbie, um, can I give her my number later after the meeting? I'll stay on the line if I can't give it to her now. Okay, let's wait to the conclusion of the meeting please okay. for number stages. Thank I'll you so much. You. Sandy, go yeah. ahead with a question. Oh, well, I was just going to suggest to people that are still on here that can't find sponsors that if they could find someone at 9 o'clock when you um, offer people... Thank you, Sandy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, we will. We can discuss that after the conclusion of the recording. Thank you. I just want to make use of this time for questions for Lori, if we could, please. Maria, do you have a question for us this morning? Here I am. Can you hear me? Yes, Maria, go right ahead. Okay. I want to thank you so much, Lori. There were so many things that I identified with. I absolutely loved hearing um, 
my own thoughts coming out, out and loud. Um, you know, one of the miracles that I experienced today is like you being able to watch my loved ones eat desserts, you know, and not being envious or angry or anything like that. But um, my question, um, I too got abstinent in another 12-step group that I was in for 12 years. I realize now through the Vision for You experience and also having gone to a primary intensive where I came face-to-face with my own powerlessness, I realized that I I was sponsoring only for abstinence and I was only going after the abstinence. Today, I know my much bigger problem is the obsession of the mind. Now, having said that, one of the things that I'm struggling with right now is that your talk, as wonderful as it was, the thing that came through loud and clear to me is that you drink a beer or a glass of wine and beer occasionally, you know, and the program I got abstinent on was no sugar, flour, or wheat. So I've been struggling. I've, I've gone through the steps, and, you know, I, I, I am recovered, but I wonder. And, and that's the addict in me that, gee, am I really uh, allergic to wheat? Just because I swore off of it, does it, does it really mean it? And I guess I see a little door opening for me, and and it's telling me that I should go back and take a look at all of my foods and, and try to figure out really what I'm allergic to. Or should I just say heck with it and just stay off the sugar, flour, and wheat and be happy? Or do I do a fourth step on it? <laughs> so any <laughs> words of advice? My basic advice is if things are working for you, why change? Uh, but if, if they continue to niggle at you, if the things continue to niggle at you, put them on your step four as a resentment and see what happens. Okay. All right. Well, I, 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 don't, I, I don't, don't follow me. Don't follow me. Don't do what I do because my issues are different from your issues. You, you know, I mean, lots of people don't drink. And, and, and for them, that's important uh, not to drink. So, God, Right. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's different. You know, you can obviously eat butter and I can't. Big deal. I hope that helps. Thank you, Maria, for the question. Lori, I'm assuming now is a good time to wrap up for you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you again, Lori, for your fascinating insights and offering us an understanding into the grave nature of our illness. And I'm going to close the meeting now with the reading. Uh, a vision for you always closes its meetings with, and that's from page 164, chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. 
clear away the wreckage of your past, give freely of what you find, and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.